Hi, everybody. Cora here. Welcome back to Rev on Air, the Rev on Bear podcast, a place for sustainable storytelling with founders, activists, creatives, and phenomenal individuals who are paving the way for a more conscious, green future for us all. Today, I am very excited to get to speak to Lily Cole, model, actress, entrepreneur, and now author of an incredible book, Who Cares Wins? Reasons for Optimism in Our Changing World. Lily started her career in modeling early and quickly took advantage of the education she was getting into consumerism and unsustainable production to explore her own interest in ethical manufacturing and environmentalism. She became a spokesperson for animal cruelty, human injustices, and detrimental fashion practices from the inside of the industry, and has only allowed her voice to grow with each passing year. She has set up a sustainable sunglasses brand called Wires, which we are thrilled to have here on Rev. And she has dedicated the past couple of years to speaking to as many people as possible about our solutions to the climate crisis. At a moment when so many of us are despairing about the future, Lily is trying to offer optimism. With Who Cares Wins, I learned so much about the brilliant people forging a more sustainable future. And today we are going to discuss the movement towards a green future and how we can all engage with it. Also, how not to let fear and anxiety rule us and allow for apathy. Lily is a trailblazer and I can't wait to share her story with you all as she's such an inspiration. I hope this conversation will lead you to action and conversation as we need more than ever to be tackling the climate crisis together. Now, over to Lily to help offer us all some encouragement and initiative. So Lily, thanks so much for coming on and chatting with me today. And, you know, I always love to start out by asking our guests just a little bit about, you know, their childhoods and how they grew up and things that that influenced them when they were young. And, you know, I think it's so interesting to see or hear about how our experiences from our younger years sort of dictate the people that we grow into. So I'd love to, to just ask you if there was anything sort of within your younger years that really influenced you into this sort of activism and and the passions that you have in your life today as an you know as a woman now <clears throat> um, well firstly hi and thanks for having me um yeah I always find the childhood question is tricky because it suddenly feels like I'm in like a therapist's couch <laughs> um and I don't think we're ever I don't think we're always the best people best equipped to analyze the impacts of our childhoods on ourselves But anyway, I will try. Um, So I grew up in London um, with my mum and my sister and um, and yeah, like proper like like city kid, you know, Um, went to to the local schools, didn't really I mean, traveled with my family a little bit in camping trips in the summer. But um, my mum didn't have a lot of money. So we weren't we were kind of just very like, yeah, just city kids, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, And I didn't have really any time or respect for nature until I was a teenager and started learning about issues more and traveling more um, and eventually like fell in love with nature and have moved out of the city. Um, In terms of activism, my mum has a very strong social conscience and was always kind of very um, talkative about different issues that were going on and things that upset her and injustices that she saw in the world. And so, of course, it, it, you know, it makes sense to me that that would have been a, a big influence on my thinking. Um, and I think probably, yeah, still is today. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that it, there seems to be a common theme with, with moms. My mom was extremely 
you know, I remember her telling me when I was little that we didn't eat at McDonald's because they cut the rainforest down to make room for cat. And it was quite intense as a six-year-old to be hearing this stuff. But I think kids are, are more resilient sometimes than we give them credit for. And I do think that that sinks in. Um, well, I'm now that mum. <laughs> my family did take me to McDonald's. I don't think they'd made much of the connections at that time. Um, and now I'm with my daughter and I'm pretty much like, you know, 90, 95% vegan, 99% vegan. Um, and, but with my daughter, I have, um, I like, uh, like allow is the wrong word, but I don't stop her from eating dairy and animal products if she feels drawn to it in different environments. But I do talk to her about kind of happy cows versus sad cows Mm -hmm. and try and help her understand that if you're going to eat animal products, there are better and worse versions because yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, I don't want to be like heavy on her. At the same time, I do think it's important for people to understand, even from a young age, that the things that we eat and use have an impact that can be positive or negative. Mm. And so being more mindful of that impact is really important. How old is your daughter? She's five. <laughs> I bad saying that. Was no, like no, no. You got to start him early. <laughs> you know, I think, and I yeah, think- she wrote a book. It came up the other day because she she'd gone with her dad to the supermarket and bought some cheese products that were not organic and not like happy cows. <laughs> and I was upset about it because I was like, "Look, if you're gonna buy it, please can you just buy a nice one?" And then she was asking why, and then we got into the conversation. And then she she's very curious and she wanted to see like, "Can you show me how they treat the cows?" So we googled it. And then she's like, I'm going to write a book. And so she made a little book about cows and happy cows and sad cows and don't kill the cows. <laughs> it's so sweet. I mean, she glued together all the pages, made drawings. It was really. She's going to grow up to be quite something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she'll, well, still, she'll still take the ice cream without, you know. <laughs> oh, I mean, come on. Yeah, you got to live. But um, yeah, 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 totally. we're definitely going to talk about parenting. And I'm super excited to ask you about that more because I know we've got such a such an engaged audience when it comes to conscious mothering. So I'm excited for that. But I kind of want to just start more. I want to kind of rewind a little bit um, and go sort of, you know, dip our toes into into the area of fashion and sustainable fashion and you know obviously a lot of people will know you so much as your work as a model um which I I believe you started very early in the modeling industry and I think it's quite interesting because you know we had Arizona Muse on another podcast and she seemed to echo a lot of what I've heard you saying in other interviews and and you know topics about this when I was researching for today that you know you were able through modeling to sort of get an idea of what was going on on the inside of fashion. You were sort of able to get an education on everything from consumerism to manufacturing and, and really, you know, have an authority to speak to what was going on in the fashion industry, being such a big part of it yourself. So can you speak a little bit about, you know, what you found when you started modeling that started to maybe not sit so well with you? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I mean, when I came into that work, I was yeah 14 years old, so I was fairly clueless. Um, I had already decided to be a vegetarian because I didn't want to basically like kill animals to eat them. Um, but I didn't understand really the supply chains behind meat, for example. And, um, and you know, yeah, so it was not a very nuanced approach. It was just a kind of, that was just a kind of simple reaction, like, oh, I'll just stop eating meat and then not kill animals. And the first decision I made in 
fashion when I was modeling was that I was wearing a few times I wore fur early on and you don't really have much choice as a model you know you're just given the outfit that mm. you want to wear especially when you're starting out and you don't have any kind of authority and so I wore fur a few times and I always felt really uncomfortable about it and and that was the first kind of step I made was to say to my agent you know what can we just check that there's no fur in the jobs I'm doing um and um and just make it clear that I don't want to wear fur um, but again, that's, that was quite a simple choice and it wasn't particularly nuanced, but what happened then in the kind of coming years was that I was being asked to work with different charities because I had a bit of a kind of public platform, um, at least in the UK to bring attention to different causes. And, um, and at the same time, I was obviously, you know, working a lot in fashion with different businesses. And as soon as I started to analyze kind of social environmental problems and kind of work with these different charities, it very quickly became really clear to me that there shouldn't be this disconnect between philanthropy and business, that it doesn't make any sense, you know, that we, um, that businesses is like incredibly powerful force, which is really kind of shaping our human values, shaping our planet, like has this profound impact on everything every day. Um, and yet the kind of philanthropic activist work is being kind of siloed off or was being siloed off. I mean, there are exceptions, but it felt very much that for the most part, um, philanthropy was siloed off into NGOs and charities that were sort of like band-aiding the world's problems. And so, yeah, it just felt really obvious to me that those things, that those forces needed to be brought together and that there was an opportunity for business to be more mindful and more positive in the way that it was impacting the world. Um, I also had a few experiences where I was working with particular brands or particular supply chains that had kind of NGOs criticizing them for how they were managing their supply chain. Mm. And by investigating those and opening my eyes to you kind of the processes behind the products I was modeling, that is kind of where I started learning a lot and realizing, um, yeah, how the things we buy and sell um, have this kind of, you know, invisible impact that's really profound in their making. Yeah. And I know that you sort of, you actually took it upon yourself to, to go a step further in that, you know, I believe specifically you talk about quite often a campaign for a jewelry brand where you were interested in the effects of mining or what was actually going on behind the scenes. And, you know, I think it's, um, it, it's so funny. I always say with like sustainability, it, it's just like, once you start, you can't stop because you scratch the surface and, and then it's like, you know, like what lies underneath? It's just, there's just so much. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, one of the, you know, maybe specifically that example, because I think it is quite powerful sort of, you know, taking, going a little bit further than just saying, you know, I'm not sure if this jewelry was done in the right way or if this product was made in the right way. And also, but then like going and investigating, seeing it for yourself and learning the nuances of, of, good and bad production right because you can do things badly and you can also do things in a way that's benefiting local people and doing things in a positive way so can you tell us a little bit about you know an experience you had like that yeah sure so the one you're mentioning I read about in my book um it was I was working with a jewelry company and I did the job without much you know kind of thought around it um and then the and then I was kind of brought like kind of pulled into a media dispute between the company and an NGO who were claiming that the company was responsible for moving um, 
like moving indigenous communities, San uh, Bushmen, off of their traditional homelands in order to mine in Botswana and Africa. And um, I met with, and I was sort of used a bit by the charity as the kind of, you know, the media spotlight, if that makes sense, in, in that conflict. And so I couldn't help but be kind of brought into it. And, um, and I was also um, genuinely interested, you know, and genu genuinely concerned. So I met with an anthropologist who I still am friends with to, till today, um, brilliant guy called Dr. James Sussman, and spent a few hours talking to him. He'd spent decades already of his life um, with those communities. And he sort of tried to educate me on the history of that kind of conflict and the situation there. And in the midst of the conversation, he said, well, why don't you just come out and see for yourself? And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> and so not long afterwards, yeah, we went out and we spent, I think about 10 days or two weeks traveling around Botswana, meeting different NGOs, meeting different um, politicians, meeting representatives of the company too, um, meeting uh, San community members. And two things I think happened from that trip. One is I got a kind of an, a powerful education on how complicated these situations are that it wasn't in my perspective from what I saw, it wasn't clearly all evil or clearly all good. And as is the case in, in many kind of complicated situations, there are shades of good and bad and it's very hard to kind of find your way through. So yes, the diamond industry has provided a huge boost to the economy in Botswana and that has been deployed in many positive ways that have really lifted many people in the country out of poverty. And that's the kind of argument for, um, for diamond mining in that, in that region. Um, but at the same time, it, has, it does seem very clearly, even though there's kind of disputes around it to have displaced the indigenous communities from their traditional um, homeland and way of living. And that to me is priceless. You know, how do you compare that? How do you make a choice like that? Um, and actually, as I look out later in the book, I think that, you know, we have so much, you know, we focus a lot of our emphasis on growth and economic growth and certain metrics of progress that the West is very kind of good at identifying progress and how do we make progress and a lot of it's based on growth. Um, but actually, we, you know, that, that logic is not, is, is, you know, now threatening our, our future as a, as a species. It's like an existential threat in a way. So I think there's so much we can learn from indigenous communities and completely different cult, like value systems and, and cultures. Um, and with the example of the San Bushmen, they've been the, one of the most sustainable models of kind of human communities that we've ever known on, on our planet. Um, as James Sisman would say, like, you know, nine tenths of human history was lived as gatherer hunters sustainably without kind of wrecking their ecosystems. Um, yeah, so I think there's, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, it's a kind of long-winded answer, but I guess I'm just trying to say that it's, it feels very complicated when you're weighing up different value systems um, behind a supply chain, you know, like that. Um, the other thing that happened on that trip is that I saw that there were um, Bush, Bushman women, so um, San women who were making this really amazing jewelry out of ostrich eggshells. And so they take an ostrich eggshell, which is really big and thick, break it up into pieces, sand them into essentially like beads, uh, make holes in them, blacken some of them with smoke, 
and then string them together into these really ornate, beautiful pieces of jewelry. And at the time they were just selling them to kind of passing travelers who would, you know, notoriously haggle the prices down. Um, so we set up a supply chain selling those, selling that jewelry into Dover Street Market in London mm. at a much higher price with all of the money going back to the local communities. And it was a small thing, a small gesture, a drop in the ocean, really. But from my from an experience perspective, for me, it was the first, I didn't identify at the time as fair trade, but essentially it was a kind of fair trade initiative. And it was my first um, experience of, of looking at a situation like that and saying, how can we use trade um, as a mechanism to empower communities and to empower people? Um, what, you know, how can trade be a positive rather than a negative thing? Yeah. And it's, it's so, it's so important. And I think, you know, obviously, in the years since you started modeling, even in the years since I've started Rev, I mean, you know, obviously this was always at the heart of what we did, but it feels like in the last two years, I've felt this momentum of like genuine consumer change and interest and, you know, and consumers asking questions about where things came from for the first time. I mean, still not nearly enough, but like, I do feel this, this shift. And I think it's interesting because, you know, you so you you've you've kind of gone through this incredible career within the fashion industry and seeing things like this and you know you've then chosen to start a brand yourself and I find that really interesting because I know I'm going to ask you a little bit more about this down the line you know that we can't really shop our way out of the climate crisis and I say that very much looking at myself running a retail platform but you know as you've just mentioned also, you know, there are billions of people on earth, these people, you know, all of us need an income, we need to have a functioning economy, we need to, you know, I, I, I think like, on some levels, it would just be wonderful if we could go back to indigenous ways of living simply living with the earth, not coveting material possessions so much, but realistically, is that going to happen? You know, probably not. So we do need to alter business practices to be as sustainable, as equitable as possible. And so I know with Wires Sunglasses, which is, you know, the brand that you've kind of helped set up, it's it's quite an amazing and nuanced approach to something. Um, so I'd love for you to speak a little bit about the inspiration for, for getting involved in that and like what you were hoping to achieve with doing things differently with that brand. Mm-hmm. Um, first, before I answer that, I'll just pick up on your point about we can't go back to indigenous ways of living, which I agree with. Um, of course, you know, yeah, I can, obviously it makes sense that we're not all gonna we're not all gonna like go offline, off tech, off money, um, and back to nature. But I do think that there is an in between, and that we could learn so much from different cultures and different value systems, and in trying to integrate those into our own cultures might make us happier and more sustainable in the process. So I'm a big, yeah, I'm a big believer that it's still possible to, to take inspiration from the fact that there can be very, very different ways of seeing our relationships with the planet and different yeah. value systems that we hold. You know, it's so funny. I just want to pick up on that, Lily, before I let you answer about <laughs> wires, but it's so funny because I feel, you know, going back to mothers, actually it's, it's funny. And I feel very, fortunate that you know I grew up in the states and my mother actually my parents went to New Mexico um up for their honeymoon to you know go and visit Native American places you know they wanted to go and see what was going on my mom's always had a huge 
respect and fascination with Native American cultures. And she, when I was very young, gave me a book called Touch the Earth. And it is a, it's a culmination of, um, or like it's a compiling of different letters and essays from Native American elders and, you know, people that document the, just the massacres and the taking over of their lands and, and these people were being destroyed, their habits were being destroyed, their ways of life were being destroyed. And they knew, they knew it was wrong. You know, they always talk about the white man coming in and thinking he knows better, but I see him scorching the earth. And, you know, this is the earth that provides him his, you know, all of his worldly necessities. And we see him kill the buffalo without thinking that the buffalo feeds clothes, you know, all of these things. And it's, it was so deeply moving and powerful and heartbreaking. And, and also, you know, the, the wisdom and the pride that these people fought with till the very end, you know, it, it is. And I, I'm so glad that you said that because it, it's, it's very true. First of all, everybody listening, please go by touch the earth. Um, it's still, <laughs> you can still get it, give it to your daughter. It will, it will horrify her, but stay with her forever, probably as it did me. And I just think it's so right. And actually before we, because now we're talking about it, you know, before I ask you about wires, did you, you bring this up a, a few times and who cares wins, but you know, how, how do you think that we get people to really, I think there is a movement now I'm seeing it more on social media. You know, we're starting to see indigenous leaders have really popular Instagram profile. I mean, you know, whether or not an Instagram profile is going to do enough, um, debatable, but how do you think we get people to, to really engage with something that, that can seem very much at odds with our lifestyles or, you know, not the sort of wisdom that we're used to, to really ingesting in this sort of like modern world that we live in? Mm, that's a difficult question. Um, I think it's, I mean, I think the first thing is curiosity, right? That you've got to be curious about these cultures and other ways of being historically and in the present. Um, and then if there is that curiosity, then I think that actually nowadays we have more access than we've ever had before to understanding or at least trying to understand and opening our minds to different cultures, whether that's in reading books or watching documentaries or even you know taking trips as maybe it's hard now with the pandemic, but um, there are several indigenous communities that are much more open to to kind of visitors and um, and are themselves visiting um, kind of yeah more western nations the indigenous community I've spent quite a lot of time with are called the Yawanawa from um, the Amazon and I met them first on a trip um, into the Amazon um, but now members of that community have have been coming often a few times a year or at least once a year to Europe and so I've seen them on, on their trips here as well and I know that their attitude is very much or at least I can't speak for the whole tribe but the people that the members I know within it their attitude is one very much of um of, of the need to share their wisdom and the need to share um their kind of understanding of the plants and the medicines and the shamanic culture um and and this attitude of kind of reconciliation in the sense that that there is a lot that they can also learn from our culture and also are benefiting from, from our culture. And then if we're able to kind of bring together the, the different types of knowledge that we have, um, that there's a lot of kind of hope and possibility in that. Um, so yeah, 
maybe and, and if people don't have access to to working out how to meet cultures without going to the amazon i'd recommend as a first step just researching you know as you say there's more and more interest in this and at least in the last few years i've really noticed that um and so finding instagram accounts watching films reading books um is a pathway to just opening your mind to the fact that what we consider normal and what the the value systems that our culture prop up as normal and aspirational are a story that we've bought into it's it's a completely made up story i'm not saying it's a good story or a bad story it's just it is a story and that there are many other types of stories that have been the kind of the the holding space of different cultures and so we can choose a different story if we want or at least make space in our minds to consider a different story yeah yeah Exactly. Um, well, I agree 100%. And and please, everybody listening, you know, go go do the work on on finding people that inspire you within this this movement because it is it's amazing. And I mean, I read a statistic. Not sure if it was in your book or you know, I'm reading so much at the moment. But it's like, you know, the smallest amount of indigenous people are responsible for like. 80% of global conservation or so like it's like it's like shocking percent of biodiversity yeah. yeah indigenous communities manage about a quarter of the land and yet they hold about 80% of the biodiversity and even the world bank have recognized and, and this is a more political aspect that i also feel strongly about that we need to empower um, indigenous communities to be at the forefront of conservation efforts um, and even the world bank yes yeah, and sent out a report making that recommendation because it's very clear from the data, justice aside, you know, um, it's clear from the data that actually many of these communities would do a much better job than we've been able to of helping steer more biodiverse, um, yeah, more, more biodiversity. Yeah, and it's interesting because I feel like something that you you sort of, sorry, I'm going totally off script now, Lily, but I'm just going with it. And we will talk about wires in a sec, but, you know, I think something that you kind of waffle between in the book, which I really love and appreciate because it's a very real dilemma is will tech save us or do we need to go back to old ways of, you know, and, and here, I think this is the rub, right? Like, we are, you know, Elon Musk is tweeting. I, did you see how Elon Musk tweeted? Like, I'll give a hundred million dollars to the person who comes up with the best carbon capturing technology. And somebody tweeted back like a uh, hundred million to the guy that like invented trees or, you know, it was like, it was just so classic. Um, I didn't see the reply, but that's a good one. Yeah. It was, but like, this is it right. In a nutshell, it's like, okay, do we need to come up with huge, you know, huge amounts of technology when really we just need to stop cutting down the rainforest or we need to regenerate the land to capture carbon better, but also have we, and I think that this is something that maybe you could speak to because I know you've spent so much time talking to scientists. It's like, have we gone past the point of being able to just bring this back in natural methods? Like, do we actually now, you know, is there so much carbon? Is there so much methane? Is there so many problems that we're going to need artificial means? No, we definitely don't. We definitely, like, I wrote a whole section of the book on this. Um, so to try and put it in a nutshell, the IPCC, the interpanel, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, in their 2018 report, said that even if we manage to become carbon neutral, I think that the request was the whole world by 2050 needs to be carbon neutral. But even if we manage to 
kind of achieve that, there's still going to be a, a significant amount of excess carbon dioxide that's already in the atmosphere that we need to draw down. Um, and so we do need to think about carbon capture alongside, alongside reducing emissions. We also need to think about how to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Um, and, and then answering that question of how do you draw down emissions, there are tons of different solutions and some of them are technical and some of them are geoengineering, which is kind of even more scary technical responses. And then there is nature and nature-based solutions. And I think it's very clear and there's lots of data that shows this, that nature-based solutions can solve the problem. You know, can nature is the most amazing technology. Um, we see that many instances around the world where you leave, you know, even like a site like Chernobyl, if it gets left alone, nature will slowly recover and, um, and heal the space. But, um, but in order to empower nature to do that, we need to stop destroying nature. We need to stop kind of encroaching on wild space, yeah, deforesting, all the things we're doing that are encroaching more and more on nature. Um, and then the really tricky thing is in order to stop doing that, we have to look at our consumption patterns because it is consumerism and yeah, the kind of appetite for different consumer products that is driving the deg degradation of nature. Um, and so I think a lot of the tech solutions, I'm not saying I'm against them and I'm actually supportive of them in the sense of like research and development, because it may be that there are some kind of yeah miracle solutions in it. And it may be that we really do need them um, because we're not able to make other changes. But I just worry with a lot of the tech focused solutions, it's coming from a mindset of assuming that we can just carry on our version of normal. We can carry on with a kind of consumerist capitalist con culture that wants us to buy new a million times over again. That um, doesn't really think about waste, that just thinks about economic growth first and foremost, and that we can band-aid that with some techno fixes so that we can just kind of carry on, you know, without more fundamentally changing, um, yeah, the nature of our economy and the, and the nature of our culture. And I think that that would be really sad and as an outcome because there are, it's not just carbon dioxide when it comes to the environment, it's also biodiversity and a lot of these tech, tech solutions are not solving for biodiversity, they're just solving for carbon. Um, and it's a tragedy to be losing species, but also it's a human health hazard to be losing species. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but there was a few reports that came out last year um, in light of COVID, very clearly connecting the rise of zoonotic diseases like COVID to the same driving factors that are driving the biodiversity and climate crisis. Um, so I think that the, the consequences of not dealing with biodiversity are already being felt. Um, and tech, techno fixes are not going to solve for that. I mean, some techno fixes might in the sense that there are some like things like, for example, vertical farming um, is interesting because it reduces the amount of land needed for farming. Lab grown meat is potentially interesting because it would reduce the amount of land needed right now for normal animal agriculture meat. So there are ways in which the technology might be used to make, um, I guess, our consumption models more efficient. And then that would allow us, if we have the right policies in place, to free up more space for nature. Yeah. Um, so I'm not against tech. I'm just wary of tech as a silver bullet that stops us from, or the belief or the hope in that silver bullet stopping us from making more fundamental changes. Because I think actually those more fundamental changes might also make us happier, ironically, you yeah. know, because our, our culture has 
the most insanely high rates of mental health issues, you know, um, and we need to solve for that too. <laughs> and, yeah. and ask, you know, is this, is this the culture that is actually driving human happiness, let alone, you know, environmental and human health? Well, I mean, it's super interesting too, because <laughs> no, no, I, I, I agree 100% with everything you were saying, you know, and it was interesting. I had, do you know, um, the author Charles Eisenstein? Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. Uh, so I had him on the podcast. I did an interview with him years ago. Yeah, he's quite something. And I had him on the podcast a couple of weeks ago because, you know, his book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is possible. Like, I think like the philosophical and what you're kind of talking about, the mental, like all of this stuff is so important to bring into consideration. It was just funny how you said, you know, just there like dealing with mental health and happiness and stuff because it was interesting. His approach when I was saying, you know, well, how do we deal with the climate crisis in terms of, you know, other ways that are like human ways of doing it? And he was like, you know, this is where I think tech can be really not helpful because he was like, we need to talk to each other. And he's like, you know, we really need to like, remember how to speak to each other. Like, because, you know, I see this on Instagram. There's so much, you know, there's so much vicious language. There's so much sort of, there's a lot of good coming out of social media, but it's also probably not the place to have a really constructive conversation with someone because inevitably like writing on an Instagram post or engaging with somebody in short snippets, it's just, it's not a good way. I don't think of communicating like these huge big problems and these sort of like the need for us to remember also to genuinely like speak to each other, you know, like really like sit down and, and have real conversations face to face like that's always going to be the most important way to influence each other and 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 talk it out so you know with tech and, and conversation and all of this stuff do you think do you think that that face to face and conversation and, and really talking to each other is like a, another non-tech solution or do you think that we just need to be putting the messages out however we can whenever we can Sorry, I don't quite understand the question. So basically what I'm saying is, because a lot of people ask, I know at Rev, like a lot of the feedback we get is sort of, you know, how do you have these conversations with people, right? And it's sort of like, if we're talking about tech as a medium for communication, mm -hmm. is it as effective to be putting something on Instagram? Is it effective to be, you know, WhatsApping your friends, like little articles or whatever, or is it just really that we need to remember to sit down, you know, post COVID when it's safe again, um, you know, sit down and, and have conversations about it. It's just, you know, how do we effectively communicate the climate crisis and the need for change, basically, I think is my question at, at the heart of it. Well, I think um, listening is actually key because these topics are so complicated that there's there's no way any single person has it all figured out. And, and we live in an increasingly polarized culture, arguably because of things like social media, um, that it's easy to kind of fall into an ideological camp and have a strong position for this or against that. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, an issue like the climate biodiversity crisis is an issue that connects us all in the same way that COVID, even though it's shown up a lot of inequalities, was also an issue that affected us all. And, um, and in dealing with issues of that scale, it feels like ridiculous to do anything other than try and work together, you know, and communicate and cooperate to try and find solutions. 
And we'll only be able to do that if we get better at listening to each other and being more humble, you know, um, doesn't mean we'll always agree to with what we're listening to, but we'll only have the space to agree or not agree if we're open to listening. Probably one of the most inspiring people I interviewed for the book was a man called John Francis, who um, saw a huge oil spill in the 70s in San Francisco Bay. And he decided in response to that, that he wanted to stop taking any type of kind of or, like automobile transport. He didn't want to use oil at all. And so he'd stopped driving anywhere and he decided walking everywhere. And he became kind of known as the guy who walks. And then he kept being asked over and over again, like, why have you, why, you know, why are you walking everywhere? Um, he walked everywhere for 21 years, just to be clear. And like across America a few times, oh um, and people would be like, why are you doing that? It's not going to save, you know, it's not going to solve the problem. One person walking, why don't you just jump in my car, blah, blah, blah. And he got so tired of having to like defend his position that he just one day took a vow of silence and he really enjoyed it. So he carried that on too. So for 17 years, he was both silent and walking everywhere. Um, and he walked across America to go, I think, to university and as this kind of, yeah, silent, silent guy. And when he arrived on the East Coast, he spoke for the first time after, yeah, seven, 17 years um, on Earth Day. And that what he said, which really spoke to me, was the, that he had... He was an environmentalist. He'd been studying um, kind of environmental regulation. I think he was working on the local council for environmental regulation. But what he'd realized in that experience was that the environment isn't some like abstract thing out there that we have to like solve and fix with policies and regulations and tech or whatever. I mean, that helps, but the environment begins with us because of course we're animals on the planet. So like our environment begins first and foremost with ourselves and our relationship to the world around us, which means also our relationship with to other humans. And if we don't have a harmonious relationship to other humans, how can we expect an harmonious relationship to the wider environment? And so the need to listen to each other and to kind of foster better human relationships is central to an environmental perspective, which I thought was a very interesting approach a very kind of yeah unusual and interesting way to to think about it and he'd gone across the US and he said he'd spoken to or not spoken to he'd listened to so many different people who normally the news would have like scared him from you know talking to or his parents would have scared him from talking to but he just listened to everyone and and I think I guess that was his learning from that from that um from that process was that there's something to learn I guess from from everyone and that learning to listen is a, is a key to this challenge. I love that. And actually it's sort of, it's a different, it's a different response than I've heard from a lot of people who look, you know, who are always saying, you know, do this, do that. And actually just maybe stopping listening, educating that, that arguably could be step one for, for all of us, no matter how far along the journey we are. Um, so thank you for that. And now and another story, sorry, that I came to mind when you were saying that is Mark Boyle, who I have in the book, who was also an environmentalist and was campaigning and at some point just felt that it was really paradoxical for him to be campaigning using a laptop and using a phone and using these devices that he felt were like so violent in their production to the natural world. And so now he's gone completely off tech, completely offline, you know, lives on a patch of land in Ireland by growing his own vegetables and fishing in the local lake. 
And for him, everyone's journey is different for it, but for him, that was the most authentic version of environmentalism in yeah. his way. I mean, he has written a book, so it's not that he stopped communicating, but in a way, him living his ideals was more important than trying to persuade anyone else to come on board and live these ideals. Um, and I think that's something really powerful about that, which is that the, the most important thing we can do is look at our own actions. It's a bit like, you know, the, like the, the adage with children, they'll do, um, they'll, they'll, do, they'll do what you do, not what you say. <laughs> you know, that like the best, the best thing we can do is to, to be the person we wanna be, or try at least to be the person, we, be closer to the person we wanna be rather than, yeah, rather than talking about it. I get sick of myself talking about things. At some point, I think I just need to shut up. And <laughs> <laughs> No, you have a lot of great things to say. And gardening. <laughs> no, not at all. But, you know, it's so funny because it's interesting. Like, so my parents, um, they don't have iPhones. They don't have Wi-Fi at our house. My dad's like a total old hippie. My mom is like, I just can't be bothered. And it's so funny because speaking of, of sort of, you know, emulating your parents, obviously by default, what I do, I have to be involved in tech, but it's interesting because I see, I see them watching me through their eyes and, you know, they both are always like, God, you're so stressed or you're so like, you know, and like my parents, like, you know, everybody's like, how do you communicate? And my parents have like the happiest, most meaningful relationships of anyone I know, like actually oh, nice. arguably, you know, and I, they like when my husband and I get home and we both work obviously within the digital space, I, I see them like looking at us on our phones or, you know, being distracted from even each other because like a phone pings or, or, you know, waking up at 5am and jumping on my laptop because it's five hours ahead in London. And I'm so terrified of my inbox being full. And, it's just funny because I watch them and, and they're both environmentalists in their own way and they're both happy and they're both, they both have conversations, you know, like my mom, I, my mom went on this big thing with them with plastic free cleaning. I don't know if you've heard of this company called Blue Land in the States, but they're basically doing refillable cleaning products. So you get the first glass bottle and then everything else just comes in sachets, like biodegradable sachets, you add water and you've got one bottle for your cleaning products for the rest of your life and and you're not getting a new plastic bottle and you're not having the carbon footprint of transporting a shitload of water basically which is what a lot of these things have in them and um rather than like go and preach about it my mom just bought a, an initial starter set for all of her best friends for christmas and that's cool yeah they've all started using it, you know? And so my mom always, she's like, so I've gotten at least five people off of plastic cleaning products, you know? And like, that's like maybe not something huge, but it's something that I've done, you know? And I think that there's, if all of us were doing little things like that, it would accumulate to something, I think really quite mega. Comparing your parents' story also makes me think of something else, um, which is that so much of this sustainability movement in recent years feels like bourgeois and like you have to like you have to buy this nice set of sustainable products or you have to buy this sustainable packaging or you have to buy the sustainable you know it's like it's a new version of consumerism really with sustainable ethics baked in which is arguably much better than what precedes it but is still in some ways feels problematic because then you look at like the, the generation above me. So my mum and um, my daughter's grandparents um, on her dad's side. And they, you know, they're not like buying into sustainable brands necessarily. I mean, maybe occasionally, but it's not like, that's not their way of thinking about the problem, but they just don't waste. 
and they just have a very kind of low carbon footprint by virtue of just not like of a mindset of not wasting and not over buying stuff and not over consuming mm. um which in a way feels so much more sustainable and and that's a kind of there's a simplicity to it and actually when i was writing the book i came across a really um like tricky but important report that looked at people's environmental awareness and um, their carbon footprints. And it argued that as people, as generally speaking, but there's been quite a few studies that have shown this, as people are wealthier, um, paradoxically, their environmental awareness increases, but their carbon footprint also increases because yes, they might make better buying choices and buy organic and, um, you know, and, and be vegan or whatever, um, but they're still more likely to have a bigger house, travel more, and be having making lifestyle choices that are higher impact. And that more than anything, actually, wealth is the determiner of of your of your kind of footprint, um, which is a really inconvenient piece of information in a in a in you know in the kind of messaging that I've definitely been part of of sustainable consumption and you know, a more sustainable version of capitalism. Yeah. Um, so squaring that is, I'm not saying I know how to do that, but we also have to be realistic, right? About um, when you spoke about your parents, it just made me think of that, that like sometimes the most sustainable people might not be the, the, the poster children of, of sustainability. They're yeah. just quietly, humbly living a, a more, you know, light touch, light touch life. Well, it's just so funny. It, it's making me like what you just said made me think of the last time I was in LA, like, I went to a farmer's market and the farmer's market was so great. They were talking about all this like regenerative, you know, there were like loads of beautiful plant-based regenerative, like very cool things happening at this farmer's market. But I would say 60% of people had showed up in like a Range Rover or, you know, like, like the most, like, like the car park was literally a who's who of like, gas guzzling huge cars and you're just like okay so we're missing a trick somehow here you know like yeah it doesn't really matter if you're buying regenerative agriculture if you are knocking around a city in like the world's biggest SUV you know it, it, it's it's a really good point that you make because I think a lot of people do say this that you know sustainability is, is a is a privilege and it's a rich person's you know choice but but actually if the whole thing is just consuming less being happier with less wasting less like it opens it up to be accessible to to pretty much everybody yeah exactly um yeah so so then this leads me now back to what i wanted to ask you because again I'm saying all of this very much with a poke at myself. I know that I sell expensive clothing. I know that I sell expensive organic beauty. I know that we're doing, you know, retail at Rev. You know, two years ago, I made a conscious decision that 50% of the website would be editorial based and free content to offset that and hopefully make it more approachable to everyone. But I'm still obviously selling people stuff just as I wanted to ask you about setting up a brand where you know you're selling people sunglasses um and why you made that decision and and sort of the mentality behind wires that has made you feel like it was the right thing to do yeah sure i mean the reason i'm able to like tease out that conversation is because i feel it personally too i'm not trying to put it on you at all yeah um i went from 
yeah, being agnostic to what I was selling as a model to being more mindful about trying to sell products that I can believe in. And I'm still in that position. And then in the back of my mind is the kind of the narrative I just said to you of like, actually, maybe we just need to stop selling shit. <laughs> um, um, or at least not so much. But I do think you can pull those threads together in terms of thinking about quality rather than quantity. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, my experience as an entrepreneur has really taught me that, that I've Wires is now the third company that I've been involved with setting up. And um, two of those companies were sustainable fashion companies. The first was a knitwear company called The North Circular. I remember and, that, yeah. Yeah, and we great. got um, mostly elderly people in the UK to hand knit goods and we used just like we started off with wool from rescued sheep and eco-friendly dyes like we tried to make it as perfect as possible in how it was made um but it was a prohibitively expensive product as a consequence because it was impossible to to compete with um knitwear that was being you know produced in factories in china for example or even being handmade in lower income countries Mm. like other competitive brands were doing where they can pay people a lot less and benefit from those wage gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and Wires too is a, yeah, sustainable, well, I say sustainable, tries to be as sustainable as possible um, as an eyewear brand. Um, and again, we, you know, we produce the, the glasses in a factory in Italy that's run by a family. We use the best materials we can find, which um, at this point in time is um, largely bio, bio materials for the lenses and rims. And that ends up being a much more expensive process to produce than if we were just to, I mean, we looked at the comparisons, we could have produced them in, in China at a fifth of the price, mm. um, but we would have had no oversight of the kind of so- social environmental regulation. And that wasn't interesting for me, but I make those examples just to say that in the experience I've had of, of, of setting up these businesses, it is much more expensive to produce products when you are trying to do it in a socially environmentally responsible way and that means that often not always because sometimes scalability helps but often kind of socially responsible sustainable goods do cost more um, which can then make it feel a bit bourgeois to buy into but I think that if we shift our mindsets towards quality rather than quantity and we kind of question this idea that we've been fed for so long that it's okay to buy stuff that's like super cheap and to just throw it away and to buy loads and you know much more than we need like if we question that underlying logic of fast fashion um and all the other kind of cheap fast industries that you know have grown up alongside um then we can marry marry together i think the ideas we're talking about of like yeah maybe older generations who wasted less and repaired you know my mom would never like not repair her clothes you know and not like you know a coat was something that you'd get every few years and you would like look after and and keep long term like if we can get back into that mindset that was not very long ago was the norm in terms of our relationship to material things and then marry that with you know trying to support brands that are trying to make things in a more socially environmentally responsible way then I think there's a possibility of shifting towards a slower more caring version of consumerism. Yeah, I mean, and you say that, I think like, I don't know if you saw this yesterday, it was kind of getting like splash around the news, but it just made me think so much about this is, did you see that Jeff Bezos has just produced a yacht that is so big that it needs its own yacht to like go inside of his yacht to have a helipad because he couldn't get a heli. I mean, like 
it, it's insane. Like Jeff Bezos. It's so big it needs a what, sorry? A, a yacht for the yacht. There is actually a yacht that like is within this mega yacht. Like, oh like you know, you you kind of almost like, I, I when I saw it, I thought it was actually like a spoof. I thought it was like, you know, somebody was saying something, but actually like that is a testament I don't know if that's a testament so much to the fact that Jeff Bezos is a sort of person that would do that, or if it's a testament to just how much we can see. I mean, how, because that is a man who's solely made his money from our consumption habits, you know, like. We're all responsible for the yacht that needs a yacht. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if you Google it, I mean, it's real. Sorry, I just actually looked it up and now it's making sounds at me. I mean, can you see, but can you see that this has actually happened? There is a yacht within a yacht. It's not even fiction. And then he, and then he has like, I was actually looking at this really great Russell Brand video that went out last week, kind of pulling him apart. That has a clip of him saying, we are destroying the natural world. And Russell Brand's like, "Uh, no, you are mate. (laughs) (laughs) That's you. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, it's just like, I think, because like also, I it's, we can't, we cannot continue to buy as much as we are buying. And I think that also, you know, there is, I think that's like what you and I are getting at, like, you know, it's impossible also to make cheap, sustainable products, like if you're actually doing it, like the right way round. And so it might mean that we all just need to learn to live with a little bit less, you know, of more quality, which we obviously, I think- And both- also get into repairing, you know, yeah. like fix things. Um, I just think that's so important that like, I, I'm not saying I'm, I'm by any means perfect. I'm very far from it. I have too much stuff, but I would say I have like clothes that I have had since I was a teenager that I really loved at the time and I still love now. And I just repair them, you know, I get my mom to help <laughs> repair them. I would like never dream of throwing them away. Um, And so building that relationship that has then history to the things we own feels, yeah, that feels really important. Actually, something we're going to try and do with Wires now, we're going to launch um, a Kickstarter on it next month to see if people buy into this idea is around modularity. And so um, we designed the glasses so that you can take the rims off of the wire. So it's like a rim that holds a lens that Mm -hmm. attaches to the wire, right? Um, and this is actually the vision from the very beginning. It's just taken us a long time to develop how to do it in a way that's like really user-friendly. Mm-hmm. And so the concept is that you can buy one wire that has then multiple rims that can attach to it. So you could change your style. You know, you could choose maybe in a year or two years to change your style without having to buy the whole glasses again, um, which is cheaper for the customer, but it also means you use a lot less material. Mm. Um, also if the lenses get scratched you can replace it without having to replace the whole frame Um, and I use that as an example that I hope we will see more and more of in fashion and in other industries around kind of modularity and repairing so that when something breaks or even if you want to change style you don't have to like replace the whole object and you don't throw it away you can break things apart replace part of it fix part of it um, because I think that will allow for a, yeah, a much more, much more sustainable business models that that kind of uh, yeah allow for kind of the capitalist economy that we're in to function without having this kind of material um, de- like depletion of resources that is completely unsustainable. Yeah, 
Yeah, 100% agree. Um, find your local repairman. My, I've got a guy here in Hackney who literally sorts us out and and I, I love him, you know, it, it's, it's a pleasure to go see him. He knows my name. He has, you know, helped me and my husband repairs so many things and, and we haven't thrown away any clothing in, in the three years we've been here. So, so maybe if- more brands are doing that too. I was told yeah. Mulberry do that with their bags. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, there are more and more brands and I hope we'll see more and more movement that way. I mean, Apple have started doing that with their buyback programs. You know, they introduced a year ago where you can, or two years ago, you can sell your old devices back to them. Yeah. Um, like all of those movements are so important so that we actually start making economies more circular. Exactly. 100%. So I feel like we've covered so much and I wanted to, there were two things specifically I wanted to ask you, you know, before we, before we sign off. And one is, you know, there's, so everyone should go by who cares wins and they should read all of it because there's so many wonderful solutions and, and, and different ways of doing things. There's something for everybody, but I, I'm personally, I'm a foodie. I love food. I love agriculture. I love, I love this conversation around how we do it right. Um, like you, I'm probably like 95% vegan. I find it very hard not to eat cheese. Um, (laughs) it's my, it's my Achilles heel. Um, but I, you know, I love that you spoke to, you spoke to everybody from Alice Waters at Chez Panisse, who I love. And I, I love her approach to regenerative and local farming. I mean, she's doing amazing things like the edible schoolyard project where she's trying Mm -hmm. to get, you know, local schools growing and people, kids learning how to make their own food, you know, and that really kind of homegrown natural way of doing things all the way to the founder. I always forget his name of impossible meats. Um, and you know, Um, yeah, exactly. And, you know, so how, so I just wanted to ask you because you cover so much in that chapter about food, you probably eat quite similarly to me. How do you feel about it? Because, you know, I know that you present different sides of the argument in each chapter, but I feel like it's one of those things that everybody loves to get an opinion on is what you feel with food is genuinely like having done all the research, spoken to all the different yeah, people. What's your opinion? It, was, it surprised me when I wrote the book that it was the most kind of polarized space in the environmental movement like people were so ferociously on either side of the particular like the the meat anti-meat camps um i think the consensus there is very very clear consensus from all sides that we need to drastically reduce the amount of um, animal products that we're eating the data on that is really clear there's been loads of scientific reports that are non-biased making that very very clear that the like appetite for meat products has has risen exponentially. Um, Like meat used to be more of a luxury and it's become a commonplace kind of part of people's diets. Um, And that coupled with the fact that the human population has grown and and as economies have grown, there've been more people accessing meat just means we've created this kind of insatiable appetite for human, um, sorry, I was gonna say human protein. Ah, that'd be weird, (laughs) animal protein. Um, and just to give you an example to paint the picture right now, the amount of land that we use for, um, for animal agriculture is 83%. It's the vast majority of all agricultural land. And yet it provides about 19% of the calories. So it just uses a disproportionate amount of land. Um, and it's considered the, either the first or the second biggest contributor of, of carbon um, greenhouse gas emissions. So I think all that to say the consensus is very, very clear that we need to eat a lot less. And then where there's debate is, is whether we should be eating 
no meat whatsoever, um, which is what Pat Brown would argue and hence him trying to make kind of beef that tastes like beef, but isn't beef that can disrupt the market. Um, and then the environmentalists like Alice Waters who believe that actually monocrop cultures that are needed for fake meats are also part of the problem because they're destroying soil health. And that for us to have really healthy agricultural practices and regenerative farming, animals need to be part of that picture because it's a different type of farming that's really good for the health of the soil. And then the soil can draw down more, more carbon and foster more biodiversity. And that's where you get a kind of debate within the community. Um, my personal position on it, um, and I looked at in, um, in one of the podcast episodes of Who Cares Wins, the second episode, I go quite deeply into this issue if anyone's interested to listen more. Um, my personal position is I try to absolutely avoid factory farming. So that's why I give my poor five-year-old daughter the lectures on happy and unhappy cows, because to me, factory farming is, is just feels so wrong on so many levels and I'm pretty confident that if humanity like progresses in a positive direction and you know in, in the decades to come it will be looked back on as 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 a, you know as a kind of atrocity as criminal I think that the way that the factory farming um, industry treats animals is is criminal um, so I tried and uh, that's as, alongside the environmental impact so for me personally I try now to really avoid factory farming. Um, but I think that there is maybe an argument and I'm pretty much vegan myself because I, I find it very hard to work out what version of anything can make sense. That, that, that space has gotten smaller and smaller. I was eating eggs, free range eggs until recently. And then I, I learned, I mean, here's a horrible bit of information for you, but that they just kill billions of baby chicks every year, even organic free range. Um, because they're not like the I that the the chickens that are bred for eggs are different to the chickens that are bred for meat, and so for the chickens that are bred for eggs, all the boys are just redundant, and so they'll just like literally you know kill them day one. So then I oh, I recently had great, to out, uh, <laughs> organic eggs. <laughs> yeah. um, but all that being said, I do I am sympathetic to Alice Waters. Her philosophy really speaks to me, and so I think a version, like a friend of mine just bought meat from, um, there's a farm in England uh, that actually I interviewed Isabella Tree who runs it, NEP Estate. It's like a rewilding project and they sell the meat of animals that have been kind of reared wild on that land. Like my friend buying that meat and having that in her freezer to eat, I feel really good about, you know, not that I feel I need to eat it myself. I don't really miss meat, but that's a version of eating meat that feels really responsible to me. And I think that if we were to get, it's kind of going back to the quality quantity um, conversation again, if we were like to see animal products as being more of a luxury and to have a really strong ethical and environmental structure around how they're made, then I wouldn't be opposed to people feeling the need to have that as a part of their diet. Um, yeah, but um, I don't know. Sorry, there's a long answer for you. Wow. That's where I ended up. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm 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 right there with you, and now horrified to learn that about eggs. Um, so you know, I I think it, it again, it's just scratching the surface and doing the research and figuring out what works for you. But 100%, we cannot eat factory farmed meat anymore for the environment or just for the fact that that level it's not even just meat that was the tricky thing when I was a teenage vegetarian that's why I said it was a bit naive and not nuanced because I was eating 
plenty of dairy. You know, if you if you're a vegetarian for the most part, you often eat more eggs and cheese and animal products because they're kind of replacing the meat. And it was only later that I started learning about factory farming. And I was like, oh God, it'd be better for me to eat probably like a lo like a locally caught fish than cheese that's come out of this industrial system. So I don't know. It's quite, yeah, it's quite complicated. Well, again, it's just like you said, you need to do your edge, like you need to educate yourself and figure out what works for you. But I think I agree with you completely. If you're going to eat cheese, if you're going to eat meat, it has to be, or it should really be organic. It should be as local as possible and, you know, and do look into animal welfare. Um, and the really exciting thing about food when I looked at it is it's such a big part of the problem in terms of the impacts on land and um, greenhouse gases, et cetera. But it also has the biggest capacity to be the solution, like both because for the people who have luxury of choice, it's a very simple decision for us to change our diet every day. I mean, maybe hard psychologically, but but it's a decision that we can make, you know, a few times a day and shift. Um, but also then the impact it has literally directly on land through agriculture is so profound that if it's transformed, you know, if you do shift towards more regenerative agricultural practices, then we are empowering nature to become part of the solution. So it also has this amazing capacity to help heal the earth. Yeah. And that I find quite inspiring. Absolutely. Um, well, my final question then for you, Lily, because I know that you've got a dash soon. Um, I could I could chat to you all day, but I do want to get this in is that, you know, we've we've talked about your daughter quite a bit. Um, and she sounds like she's great. I think, you know, just just for full transparency, I've mentioned this on previous podcasts, you know, I my husband and I, we feel really worried about having a baby, you know, like it, it just seems like some days I feel like I want to bring a child into this earth that I can, you know, do, you know, help them live a great life and be a part of a great society and, and, and be solution driven. And then other days I just feel like, God, you know, I don't know if I want to bring a child into, you know, so many problems and it, it, it is a huge discussion. And then I know there are a lot of women and, and men that listen to this podcast that have young children. And I'd love to hear how you're sort of, you know, You've, you've had to ingest so much terrifying information to write this book. You've chosen to live your life in a way that's very conscious, which means that you are constantly ingesting information. How do you go about parenting and feeling like hopeful for your daughter's future? And, and sort of what are you doing to kind of help move things along in the right way for her, I guess? Like, how are you approaching parenting at this very interesting and, and, you know, quite frankly, anxious time, I would think. Oh, I don't know. I feel like reflecting on your childhood is similar to reflecting on your parenting. It's like very hard to be <laughs> objective. objective about. Um, I'm not um, like, I think I, I like, I talk to her about issues, of course, like the happy cow, sad cows narrative um, and general values around like, you know, why we shouldn't waste and she pulled some leaves off a tree you know this morning and I was like say thank you to the tree you know just try and be like a bit more I guess mindful to our relationship to nature and she loves nature I think as a consequence of those efforts in a way of like getting her in nature and planting and being more involved um but I definitely don't lecture her on um the climate crisis or the biodiversity crisis or any of the kind of bigger scarier narratives going on because she's five years old she doesn't need that and what's she going to do about it right now um, for me, it's just important that the, the main priority is, you know, that um, is 
her happiness in a way, you know, like, and I don't mean that in like kind of selfish way, but it's like you want to bring up a balanced, a balanced child with good values and then they will decide how those manifest. Um, I also think that we have so much we can learn from the younger generation. And whilst I don't really buy into the narrative around, I'll bring up, I'm not saying to you personally, I'm just saying the general narrative of like, Oh, I can, I, you know, I can, I can make sure my child is a like conscientious citizen who can save the planet because we no idea how our children are going to turn out. Um, and actually the children in Western culture are inevitably a bit of a part of the problem because we just are in a culture of, of high consumption. Um, and so, yeah, I don't necessarily buy into that logic. Um, but what I do buy into is that we don't know how the next generation are going to change us. Um, and that, we're already seeing from teenage kind of, you know, youth activists, the huge galvanizing effect they've had on, um, on, our, politi on our politics and our culture um, for the environment. M less binary ways of thinking about gender. You know, there are so many different movements that are being born out of youth culture mm. that I think are really positive, that we don't know actually the generation after them where they're going to push our society. But I'm a big believer in, yeah, that um, we can learn from from youth because youth is less conditioned in a way to see the world in the same way that, that we are. Um, and so that gives me a lot of hope. Well, I love that. And I think that's a perfect place to, to leave it. Um, so thank you, Lily. And, you know, everybody, as I mentioned, please go check out Lily's wonderful book um, to get some more perspectives on this and check out your podcast because you kind of deep dive into these things as well. So, so thank you so much for coming on and chatting to us. Pleasure. Lovely to speak to you. <laughs> Thanks so much, everybody, for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Just to say, please re uh, remember to subscribe, share if you enjoyed this, tag us on Instagram, let, you, let us know what you think. And thank you, as always, for tuning in to the Rev podcast. Take care.